0: A few weeks ago, or three, whenever Rindy and I went to uh, Oregon, just for a bit of a small, very small, tiny uh, time off group of days, was reading my Bible and uh, came across Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 23. Uh, And the reason I came across it was because it was just in my normal line of reading in my yearly Bible reading calendar, in which case I use the McShane Bible reading app that you can get on the app store. And it's a very simple app. You read four chapters, uh, two in the New and and three in the Old, and you will read through the New Testament twice in a year and the Old Testament once in a year. Uh, and so this was just in the line of reading. So the moral of the story is, uh, if you'll be faithful to show up to your daily devotional time, God will always show you things, okay? But uh, this was one of those those occasions in which I was reading there, and uh I thought, man, I have got to share that. So in honor of God and His word, let us stand and look at Exodus chapter 23. We're going to actually read the whole chapter well, we're going to read from verse 20 through 20, uh, through 33. But then I'm going to be focusing just on the three verses. Now, just so you all know, this is in the book of Exodus, and God is getting ready to send Israel out on their journey. The ultimate goal is to inherit the land. And he says in verse 20 of chapter 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water And I will take sickness away from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my fear before you. I will cause confusion among all the people to whom you come. And will make all the enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you. Which will drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea, Philistia, and from the desert to the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let's pray. Father, this is a very poignant passage. It's a passage of Scripture with which we need to wrestle with. Lord, it's so easy for us, this far removed from the scene, being Gentiles ourselves, not understanding a lot of the symbolism here, the the phraseology. But God, more than anything, we need to see Jesus here because he's right here. And, Father, we need to rethink the way we think about you. So, God, today, manifest this, this, this passage to the need of our heart. Illuminate it our, to our understanding. God, the lost that are among us, we pray, call to faith, Lord, de- definitively. And, God, more than anything, be glorified in the exaltation and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we see what God had, wants to do with, with the nation of Israel as they're going in to inherit a land that has been given over to idolatry, gross iniquity, sexual perversion, child sacrifice. That is the land of Canaan. To be a Canaanite was not a good term. Okay, it was, it was to be a repugnant term. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture we read that God said the land of Canaan will actually vomit the inhabitants out for their perversions. A lot of similarities there with what we see happening in Western culture today. But the land will vomit that out. So God's people coming out of Egypt, having been for 400 years... Conditioned by idolatry, okay. Conditioned by it, they, their worldview is one of multiple gods. It's what they know. It's it's the it's the stench on their clothes. It's it shows in the way they they live and the way they groom and the way they have their families and all of those things. Egypt is sticking to them. But God is cleaning them up. God is setting them apart. God is calling them out of of idol worship, sexual perversion, and all of those, those things. And He's saying, I'm going to give you a good land, but you're going to be a distinct people when you live in that land. And if you don't, you're going to fall snare to the very things For the reasons that I'm eliminating the people out of that land for. You will become guilty of those very things. And then I will be your enemy in essence. And so God is saying to them in a magnificent promise. I am going to send an angel before you. Now we're like, like, whoa. And when I read that, I was thinking, now what? Because we know that Moses, when, he, when they had sinned uh, with the golden calf, and God was going to send them out, God said, I'm not going to go with you, I'll just send my provision with you. Moses didn't want to go. And I don't think anyone here at Northridge, or any other Bible teaching church across the nation, or the western nations, any beloved Church brothers and sisters in Christ would want to say to God. Lord as long as you will give us electricity to light our buildings. As long as you'll give us money to cover the budget needs. As long as you'll give us a comfortable place to sit. As long as you'll give us vast crowds. Then we don't really need your presence. None of us would say that. Now. In case you haven't been paying attention. Many churches. Churches today, they do have their money and they do have their vast crowds and, and they do cover their budgets, but they don't have his presence. Mm-hmm. They have a good light show. They have a really cool website. They're pretty snappy dressers and they have very charismatic leaders that write books with names like how to have a better life now. Builds you up because you're really not that bad after all. But they don't have God's presence. We always think, so God goes before them, right? He did. Pillar of cloud by day. Fire by night. When Egypt was chasing them down before they got to the Red Sea. He became darkness on one side. Light on the other crazy God always preserves his people that's what we see in that but this passage blew my mind behold I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared well who is that so the angel of promise is what we're going to deal with today And we're going to look at what a theophany is. Yes, theophany. Don't know much about philosophy. (laughs) That's what I kept thinking every time I made this out this week. Don't know much about theophany. Don't know (laughs) much about... (laughs) So, we're all going to learn. Theophany. These are these really cool places in the Old Testament especially. Where we see Jesus or God show up in a way that is unusual and manifest. So first, by definition, this is from Vern Poitras, Theophany, a biblical theology of God's appearing. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. There you have it. In the Old Testament, this is called theophany. The word theophany derives from two Greek words, the word for God, which is theos, okay, and the word for appearing, which is pheno, which in the passive means appear. So we have the appearing, a theophany is the appearing of God. And in the New Testament, the appearing of Christ Himself in the incarnation, now this is notable, is the permanent theophany of God, which is Jesus Christ. And John wrote, and we beheld His glory, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We also read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God, who at various times in various ways... In times past, spoke to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days, spoken to us by his Son, who he has made heir of all things. The permanent theophany. And we'll begin to see more of that in a little bit. But theophanies include symbolism that need to be appreciated rather than pass over as a puzzle. When you read them in the Old Testament, you, just, you don't... The burning bush, wow, there's a fire, but it's, and the bush is not consumed. Oh, well, cool, move on, don't do it. It's not a puzzle to be uh, just dismissed, but it's something to be appreciated. Moreover, theophany, in a narrow sense, has connections with the broader theme of God's presence, a theme that runs throughout the whole Old Testament... Moses thought he was alone on the backside of the wilderness with sheep, and yet God was there manifesting himself in a theophany, in a bush that looked like it was on fire, but the bush was not consumed. What a sight, I can't imagine. There's really orange flames in a fire? There's blue flames in a fire, or there's really light flickering flames in a fire. I don't know what it looked like. It was just a bush that was on fire, but it didn't get burned up. And that was God's presence there addressing Moses. So theophany represents an intensive form of the presence of God. It is, and it is intense. Very intense. Lastly, a theophany is a manifestation of divine presence accompanied by an extraordinary display mediating that presence. God, in a theophany, for example, in Moses, was mediating the inauguration of Moses' call to deliver Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And I use the one with the bush because that's the one that's most uh, popular when people think about it. However, there are others. For example, in Genesis chapter 12 and 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Well, how in the world did he appear to him? But he appeared to him. Well, we know that the Bible says that God does not have a body of flesh and bones. We know that. He's invisible. But he manifested himself some way. Genesis 18. One day Abram had some visitors. Two angels and God himself. He invited them to come to his home. And he and Sarah entertained them. Many commentators believe this could be what's known as. Now here's a new word. A Christophany. Theos is the word for God. Christos is the word for Christ. Ophany, fine, appearing. So here we have an Old Testament appearing of a pre-incarnate or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We we have what they were called three angels, but one of them seemed to be more than the others. Okay? All right. In Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 30, Jacob wrestled with what appeared to be a man, but was actually God. This is in uh, verses 28 through 30. This may have also been a Christophany. And in fact, I would probably say, that's where I would say it, a pre-incarnate Christ. He wrestled with a man. Jesus was later the God-man, okay? And Jacob says, I won't let you go till you bless me. And of course, he limped from that episode the rest of his life. And of course, the Jews don't eat that part of the... Uh, uh, the meat, because the, of the hip there that, in the lamb. So, Exodus 3:24 through 17, God appeared to Moses in the form of a burning bush. We just talked about that. Now, something I want to just side skirt on here is in Joshua chapter 5, if you want to turn there, Joshua chapter 5. We're going to see what I think is a Christophany, but it's one of the most fabulous ones. I just like this one a lot. Someone should make a movie about this episode. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So Joshua and them are uh, conquering the land. And it says in verse 13, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And notice what Joshua did. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? In which case, then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, "Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy." What does that remind you of? That goes back to the burning bush episode, and Moses was was admonished to pull his feet off, or his sandals off his. pull his feet off, uh, pull the sandals off of his feet. God, definitely a theophany, but here we have the commander of the army of the Lord with a sword in his hand identifiably as a, as a man, but very different. And they don't just, He doesn't describe how different. I don't know if he was like really tall and really big. I don't know if he glowed. I don't know. We don't know that. But we do know this. His very presence made Joshua not look away and fall on his feet and worship after he removed his sandals. And this, this commander received the worship. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, when angels are just just the angel a normal you can't really say normal angel, there's nothing normal about an angel, but an angel shows up in front of any of the prophets or wherever, and they want to fall down and worship they don't do that don't I, i'm I, get up <laughs> they don't receive it, but God always receives it. Jesus receives it even when he was going into Jerusalem. And they were bowing down and crying out. The Pharisees were was chiding him for that. He goes, if they don't, the rocks will. Because he receives worship. So, in Exodus 24, 9-11, again, God appeared to Moses with Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders. In incredible ways, God appears. Deuteronomy, God appeared to Moses and Joshua in the transfer of leadership to Joshua. Job 38, 42, God answered Job out of the tempest and spoke at great length in answer to Job's question. So there's this, this, this weather <laughs> going on. It's intense, but it, it wasn't just weather. It was a theophany of God, and Job recognized that. But then we get into the New Testament, where I think we have the ultimate in theophany, the permanent one, right? All these are cool. But this one is, well, it's everlasting in its effects. It says in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, Then Jesus came. I love that. For those of you who maybe are new and visiting to the church today, and you're not really quite sure where you stand on issues of belief in Christ or God, I just want you to know something. It is God's grace that brought you here. Okay, we happen to believe in a very sovereign God. Here, we do not believe in any happen. What we call it, happenstance. The word coincidence should be expunged from the Christians' vocabulary. There is not one shred or one atom of any created thing that happens without God's consent or direct decreative will. Now, that'll blow your mind. But by the very fact that you're here, I want you to know grace. Is aimed at you. Grace. And I'm letting you know this that out of Matthew and Jesus' own words, you need to reckon with the fact, you need to resolve that Jesus came. And in this case, it says he came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. Jesus is inaugurating his. Earthly ministry. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Now what's he saying when he says that? You're greater than I. But not only that, you're, you're God. <laughs> and you're coming to me? You're the Messiah. And you're coming to me? And Jesus answered and said, not just, oh, don't think anything of it. I like this. It's more forceful. He says, permit it to be so now. In other words, I have the authority to say, let this happen. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Because what are you going to say? Well, no, he's not going to do that. Then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water which is why we believe in baptism by immersion, okay? And behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and now we have this major, I don't know, trinity I don't know if that's official or not, but it's what I call it. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon Him, the Messiah, and suddenly a voice, God's voice, came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's a lot going on here. But for many of us, the first place we have to reckon with is then Jesus came. In John 14, verse 7-11, Jesus is speaking uh, to His disciples trying to bring them along. And sometimes we're slow as learners, right? And he says, "If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him." And then Philip says what we're all thinking. "Lord, show us the Father and that'll work. That'll be sufficient." Now now never mind all they've seen so far, never mind the baptism, never mind all of these things. Show us the Father and it's sufficient for us. What a We say dumb things to God a lot, okay? But Jesus said, and I like this, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me? Philip, and I think he stressed me a lot. I think he stressed it. Here here Philip is asking to show us the Father, and then Jesus says, Have you not known me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? You can't have Jesus and not have the Father, nor can you have the Father and not have the Son. You cannot. And then he's he he rights to say these words that I speak to you. I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Go back to the baptism scene when Jesus tells John, Permit it to be so for now. He has been given this authority. All authority has been given to me. Now granted, this is after the crucifixion. But all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. By the way, he's not waiting to gain it. Just a note. the Father who dwells in me does the work. So we can see then how Jesus is the permanent theophany. That is fascinating. So I think the commander of the army of the Lord in the Old Testament is my favorite. I like that one a lot. The sword and everything. But but this permanent theophany, he wields the sword. So Jesus in the Old Testament, there with Joshua, he had a, He had a sword. Now, this sword of this Christoph, this this permanent effulgence of God, okay, wields a sword. There is a symbol in Revelation that says when Jesus comes again, that their sword will come out of his mouth. It doesn't literally come out of his mouth like a blade. But we also know that the Bible refers to the word of God as the the sword. That's why we say, I'm going to take my, my sword in hand, right? And with it, he will smite the nations. This same Jesus that was standing there with Joshua. same Jesus. Now, I want to try to connect some dots here for you. This description we're reading out of Exodus, this angel... Is terrifying. We'll see it in a second. But it's a very terrifying description. And God is saying don't provoke him. Don't disobey him. Follow him. That's the very same Jesus. That we have. M- make sure you don't fall victim. To the softening pastels of modern culture. In seeking to de-deify and to humanize this commander of the army of the Lord. We have a mighty savior. And he is terrifying. But he's also good. That's our Jesus, see? Now, I could bounce a little on that, okay? But he says, I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and suddenly we are taken back by the Word of God as it ministers to our heart that this is the permanent theophany of God we have in Christ. That's our Savior. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't have to figure it out. He doesn't need prayers like, God, if you can help, if... I mean, I don't even have words that big, Kim, to describe what that is, except mega, okay? Maybe, or something. And then he admonishes Philip at the last, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves, because Jesus didn't say this in a vacuum, he was doing stuff that no one else has ever done. Or can do. When he calmed the sea with the word. Be still. And they all said. Who can calm the water with just a word? I know somebody. <laughs> there he is right there. God can. We must remember that in God's great desire to commune. And fellowship. Or it is God's great desire to commune. And to fellowship. With his people. If we go back to the text in Exodus he says, I send this angel to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So that in, so this is an example of what the Lord Jesus is doing to his people of all ages, bringing us to himself, bringing us to our Canaan, okay? And that's, his, that's what he's doing. And is it not important, as it says, beware of him? Well, sure, beware of him. If you're going to name, let all those who name the name of Christ do What? Huh? It's a chicken eye. That's the way they look at you. Okay? <laughs> those who have chickens know. But let all those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That's, that's like a, that's a yelling verse. If you name Christ, depart from iniquity. Don't go off on a sin fest and say, I love Jesus as my homeboy. She's my bud. Don't go be. That's I'm going to just say to you, that's blasphemous is what that is. Clearly, the person that claims to be a Christian that can live like that and say those things about Jesus have never read this part of his description. Beware of him. And obey his voice. Do not provoke him. For he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. That is so amazing. Okay. It is God's great desire to commune and fellowship with his people. Jesus as God the Son. Reiterated this when he said to the disciples at the last supper. With fervent desire. I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Do you see it? Jesus longs to commune with His people. And He goes with with, with fervent desire, I have desired this moment to, to, to eat this Passover with you. And then He goes, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. One day Jesus is coming back. And while there are four different eschatological systems. (laughs) They all agree that Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Do you remember that verse we read earlier? It says, then Jesus came. Well, Jesus came. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. But He's coming back. But you also have to understand that in so many ways beyond the comprehension of human ability, he never left either. He says, I will, it's expedient that I go. It's better for you that I go. And I will send to another like me. And he will be in you. And he will tell you of me and remind you of everything i've said so we don't ever think of jesus well it's like yes he ascended but no he's right here right so the answer is yes (laughs) i remember one time we were playing football and we had to memorize our plays we had a kid that didn't memorize his plays i was left guard he was the guy next to that what is that tackle okay good Anyway, he never studied his plays, and so we were, you know, coming back up to the line. and He goes, hey, do I go right or left? And I said, yes. <laughs> he had a pause. It was an awkward pause for a moment. I, just, I had told and told and told and told and told him. I could barely keep my chicken fried steak and gravy down from earlier that day. You don't ever want to eat that and go have a scrimmage in 110-degree heat. Like Just, Yes. Jesus desires to be with us. First Corinthians chapter 15. We see this again. But our study of Leviticus. So we've been going through Leviticus, right? And I want to connect some more dots. We've been reading about the offerings. We've been reading about all the imagery there. We see Jesus there. We see that tabernacle erected. We see its ornateness. Do you know what it all is for? Communion with God's people. Nearness with God's people. That's what he wants. To know Jesus is to commune with Him every day. I was convicted last night. i reading a book about the revival that happened in Scotland. And I can't remember all their names, but this was Reformation, 1500s or so. And there was a particular man who was a... They were all very young. They, they died very young, 20s and stuff. Not all of them, but a lot of them were. And this one this guy said he he considered it to be an ill spent day if he didn't spend at least six to seven hours in prayer. Six or seven so the whole time you're at work, he's in prayer. Now you think, how does he do that? Well, as it turns out, this man was up a lot at night praying because his wife would always go looking for him, and he kept a blanket by the bed and he'd go off outside and he'd be praying somewhere. He was always disappearing to pray. But six or seven hours in a 24-hour period is what this man prayed. He had communion with God. So to finish this up and quickly. The angel, the Christophany that goes before the people, God's people. His job is to guard and watch over them on their journey. Jesus watches over us and guards us on our journey. Okay, praise God for that. And he still goes before us. He doesn't stop. Okay, in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And notice this, follow me. If you know Jesus, you're going to follow him. And I put it in hot pink because I want you to miss it. Keep on following is the tense of the language used. If you truly know Him, you're going to keep on knowing Him and following Him. Mark 1.17, then Jesus said, Follow Me, and I will make you become fishers of men. As you're following Me, you're going to learn to fish. And Luke 9.23, so when Jesus heard these things, He said, you, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. This was the rich man who was like, What do I do to inherit eternal life? And He says, Follow Me. If you really know Jesus, you're going to follow Him. And you're going to keep on following. That doesn't mean you won't swerve all over the road. That don't mean you won't lose your mirrors going down the overpasses. Okay? It doesn't mean that you won't have bumps along the way. It it doesn't mean you may not stall out. I'm describing a Ford pickup here. Okay? (laughs) What it means is you're going to continue on your journey. If you break down, you will be repaired daily, okay? It's a double thing there, okay? And, uh, and if you blow a piston, it'll be fixed. Take some time, and God, you will be back on the road, because you know Jesus, and you will keep following Him until you blow black, oily soot out your tailpipe, and you make heaven. But you'll be there, and you will have hauled all you're supposed to haul. And in one final groan, and... You'll be like, oh, I'm home. Say, well done. Well done. And you'll give all praise to him because you'll say, there's no way I could have got here, Lord. But you. Beware of him. Remember this? And this simply means to take heed to yourself every day that you name the name of Christ. You beware of him. That's what God was telling them about the angel. He says, you beware, a frequent caution addressed to the Israelites to remind them of the reverence and awe due to the holiness and majesty of a present deity. Yeah, every day. We have this in the, in the, in the, in the Septuagint uh, also. To be in a continuous state of readiness. This is the Greek play of this. To learn of any future danger, need, or error. And to respond appropriately. To pay attention to. To keep on the lookout for. Is what beware means. Are you aware? Of, are, do you sit out every day with Jesus like that? You can get kind of casual. You really want to get casual with this Jesus? obey his voice it means li- and what's intrinsic to this word is so neat it 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 has at it as its order to obey you have to listen to obey okay to listen to someone with the implication of heeding and responding to what is heard there's a way to, this, is, this word is used here in 2 Corinthians. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in, gain, in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. God is listening. We need to be listening to God. We need to be obeying his voice. We have to listen to it. Well, where do you think you listen to it primarily? If you don't read your Bibles, I'm going to tell you this till I die. As a Christian, you will have no victory. You cannot be a thriving child of God and be malnourished because you refuse to read your Bibles. And you have all... Do you have you know how many Bibles we all have? Hard copies, digital copies, this kind of Bible, that kind of Bible, hunter Bible, football Bible. Got an army Bible, got a marine Bible, got an air force Bible. I don't know if they have a coast guard Bible, but anyway... You know, there's all kinds, but you must read it every day. I don't care how busy you are. I don't care what you're up against. I don't care how you feel. You better start wrestling with your flesh because the Bible tells you right here, obey his voice. Listen to it. And lastly, don't provoke him. <laughs> wow. For he will not pardon your transgressions. And I think that's cool because we know Jesus is the one that forgives sin. For my name is in him to rebel. Don't provoke him. Don't rebel. Don't defy his authority. Don't refuse to believe his message. Don't do that. Those of you here today who don't know Christ right now. Episteo is what you're doing. You must repent of your sins. And every day you don't. You are provoking him. That's why the Bible says. You're storing up wrath. In the day of wrath. That's why the Bible says. The wrath of God already abides upon you. To refuse to be a believer. To reject the Christian message. To refuse to believe. This all comes from the word provoke. To rebel. And as God's people, we do that when we don't do what He commands. When we watch inappropriate TV shows for entertainment. Why should we as God's people entertain ourselves with the wretchedness of the world? Why? That's like saying, let's all take a field trip down to the big lagoon at the city sewer. And we're just going to throw rocks in there and see what comes up. Why would we want to do that? That's dumb. No one wants to do that. But that's what we do when we do what God says not to do. My name is in him, this angel. My name is in him. I love it in, in John whenever uh, they come to arrest Jesus. He goes, Who, who are you after? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, I am. He and they fall back, and I'm thinking, didn't you guys get a clue? <laughs> you know, what did that? A stiff wind, I... and they got right back up again. Someone said some one time, uh, "What was it? You can't fight stupid, or something like that." I know you can't fix stupid. Yes, you can't fix stupid. Poythress writes, God says that my name is in him. The name is the divine name. For the name to be in him implies that the angel, the messenger, is himself divine. This messenger is then similar to the instances in Genesis where the angel of the Lord has divine attributes. We are dealing with a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, anticipating His incarnation. At the same time, it is God the Father who appears in the Son and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The theophany is Trinitarian. Since Christ is closely linked to this messenger, He is also linked to the pillar of cloud and fire. It is Christ who leads Israel. Through the wilderness. Did you know that? Did you ever think of it that way? I didn't. He's everywhere. I think the Bible uses a P word. To describe Christ. It's called. Preeminent. Yeah, preeminent. Because he is before all things. And in him all things consist. What have you done with this. This Jesus, meek and mild, whatever. What have you done with this Jesus that you don't want to provoke? What have you done with this Jesus who bore your sin debt and gave his best? How dare any of us ever say, oh, yes, you got to trust Jesus, but you got to help him out by doing stuff to make sure that it sticks because he's just not quite. Strong enough to put the rack, to bench the rack again. He's not quite there. We can't do that. No, this Jesus. He's the Almighty. And he's coming again. Do you know him? Are you ready for that? I pray the Holy Spirit of God's convicting your heart. There's nothing I can do from here. Do you want to ask JT to come? Come. Here's what we're going to do today. Just for, just for some moments. We have a time of response. If God has shown you your sin. And he's calling you to himself. And you say, you know what? The scripture just said, today is the day of salvation. If you will hear his voice, which we know that goes back to obey. Don't, don't rebel. What is God telling you to do? Do you need to be saved Today, in your chair between you and God, at this altar between you and God, you must repent of your sin and as being a sinner. And you ask God to cleanse you, to save you, to move in your soul. And then you declare that faith. I cling to Jesus. Christian, are you compromised? Are you dirty with the filth of the world? Have you... Allowed Egypt to come back on you some. Do you reek from being around the hog pen? You got to get clean. Get fresh. Come to Jesus. Lay it down and say, Lord, you know I've been playing with the hogs. Say, well, let's wipe you off, son, daughter. Let's, Let's start fresh. Whatever it is you need to do today, altar's open.